That is right. Yeah, I'm a little bit, um, in some ways, disappointed with this title, actually. Um, I, I don't think it has a, a great ring to it. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to be talking about this idea of freedom, but I sort of think maybe actually the title should have been more along the lines of student engagement, compulsion versus commitment, or something like this. But commitment is going to be an important aspect of where I get to by the end. Um, of this presentation, I think. Um, and I apologise if there is some overlap between what I say and, and what has already been said by both Michael and Amanda. Um, there will be a brief mention of Stanley Cavell at some point as well. Um, some discussion about voice. and um, But actually, a, a lot of the first part of this paper is uh, going to engage, di engage directly <laughs> with um, Bruce's book, um, to which I thought it would be a, a good idea to kind of respond, because I've been kind of keeping track of Bruce's work ever since my PhD, um, which was to do with academic freedom and international higher education development as well. So I was looking at his notions of student academic freedom at that time. Um, and so uh, this is kind of like trying to keep pace with that somewhat. My last apology is that um, I'm not as accomplished a speaker as maybe my colleagues, and uh, so I am going to read quite a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do have sort of slides to work from as well. So um, I come at the question, this question of student engagement from the point of view of someone who's interested in the purpose and function of the university today more generally. Um, I have to say, though, also, when I first arrived at Winchester, I had half of a job in a learning and teaching department, so I was working alongside colleagues in student engagement, and I'm quite familiar with a lot of their activities, and some of their initiatives, I think, at least at Winchester, I've always found really, really interesting and... and um, uh, are ones that are very much committed to getting students more involved in things like research um, and, uh, I suppose, co-creation of the curriculum and that sort of thing. So I'm interested in the ways that um, a higher education does distinguish itself from other forms of education and also, perhaps naively, um, I may be somewhat more of the optimist uh, or idealist in the room, um, how we can affirm aspects to the uni contemporary university rather than only focus on threats and crises. So the approach I take in my research, much like Amanda, I think is, is broadly conceptual, but also ethics-based and oriented. Um, so I think a lot about what the concepts are that we associate with the university in particular, um, that differentiate it from other institutions and why. And so far, my main preoccupation in this regard has been with the question of academic freedom. But we might include also things like institutional autonomy, the public good, critical thinking, the disinterested pursuit of truth, the research university, and others amongst these kinds of concepts. I take it that at any point in history, in the university's history, these concepts are not universal categories, but are both contestable and quite fragile according to any given context, hence why they demand our constant attention, investigation and revision. 
So here's my first controversial bit. Student engagement, to my mind, has the potential to be one of those concepts that pertains largely to a university education as one that complements the long-standing notion of academic freedom rather than one that necessarily antagonizes it, which is to say academic freedom by the student or staff which is to say that something of the ethics of student engagement might be rescued or reclaimed, to use Bruce's language, um, from a management-driven politics agenda described by Bruce in his book, or even some of the more general semantic confusion that appears to reign in both scholarship and practice. In order to make this case, however, I want to retrace some of the lines that have brought Bruce to a defence of student freedom over student engagement, and suggest that we needn't dispose of the term engagement altogether if we are to affirm good practice in the university. In moving beyond an association of student engagement with ideas of enforced attendance and participation, I want to locate its potential in the reciprocal learning relationship between academic staff and student. To toy with the semantic ambiguity of who is doing the engaging and who is being engaged, and to suggest that the term might be understood as a commitment to the community of scholarship in which we work, rather than an imposition on individual liberty. After all, I can't see that there is anything inherently objectionable about the term student engagement. It is, however, a particular brand of the discourse or policy agenda that has proved worthy of Bruce McFarlane's critique, and I think in many instances rightly so. So, one of the main difficulties in engaging with student engagement as a concept lies in its multifarious semantic, practical and theoretical interpretations. This has been said many times <laughs> already today. Uh, so, not only is it a term that, there, that has developed in different ways in different contexts, particularly in the US and the UK, something that has also come up today, but there is frequently a significant disconnect between policy, scholarship and practice within these contexts also. Questions of whether student engagement is more a matter of governance or pedagogy, whether it is a process or outcome, and just how much institutional activity should be included in its remit, or the extracurricular things, are well documented and heavily contested. Um, I haven't spoken to him, but I believe Colin Bryson is in the room, and I have referenced him here. Um, Colin Bryson also refers to the background noise of practices and curricular approaches that adopt the discourse of engagement with very little theoretical underpinning. All this amounts, correctly in my view, to McFarlane and Tomlinson's declaration of a high degree of conceptual confusion in this field. However, does this confusion therefore demand the substantial critique that it has received, I suppose, from, from Bruce and, and, and Michael, or does conceptual confusion actually ask for greater clarity? That's what I'm going to explore today. I think there are arguments to be made for the latter in a way that could yet prove to enhance the university's conceptual self-consciousness. It is as an agenda with roots in thinking about the university that student engagement has been taken to task by Bruce McFarlane, and so I will now turn to his critique to situate the objections to this idea or approach. 
In his book, Freedom to Learn, and in a more recently co-authored article with Michael Tomlinson, Bruce offers some resistance to the emergent discourse of student engagement by way of challenging its narrative that the engaged student is more likely to reap the rewards of a university education. According to McFarlane, educationalists and researchers seek to measure the impact of different educational innovations through active class participation, group and peer working, and policies that encourage and more closely monitor attendance at class. Um, As has already been mentioned, Leslie Gourlay has even described this notion of participation within the student engagement agenda as a form of tyranny. McFarlane conceives of student engagement almost as a form of pedagogical policing, whereby policy attempts to create Foucauldian docile bodies through the shaping of student disposition or attitudes via strategies such as the importance of punctuality. McFarlane further highlights three main points of contention. One, that student engagement is largely, this word again, performative, concerned with the appearance of engagement rather than its reality, that student engagement ignores the fact that students have a right to learn in the way in which they choose, and that student engagement has forgotten the importance of knowledge in higher education, emphasising only attitudes and values that should be held as part of its culture. This one I think is really interesting, but I'm not going to explore it very much um, today, so there isn't quite enough time. Um, so this narrative is disputed on the grounds of the measurements of its success, as I think you know, Michael has kind of highlighted. Um, the, the faults in the ma- metrics almost, and even the desire to want to measure things. And the fact that university management and administration is often far more preoccupied with the data of engagement than its actual experience. McFarlane thus describes the student engagement agenda as one beholden to a kind of performativity, serving only superficial or cosmetic functions of ensuring students' physical presence in classes and active contributions to learning, whilst being stubbornly blind to the anti-libertarian implications of performativity. So it is the individual student's liberty that is at stake here, but I wonder whether the pro-libertarian argument that I understand Bruce to be making doesn't take us too far, maybe, in the other direction. McFarlane's criticisms are in tune with others who see more mainstream versions of the discourse as playing into a neoliberal ideological framework. Zipke, for example, argues that the mainstream reading has an affinity with neoliberal ideas about what should be the business of higher education, namely conveying practical knowledge, building performativity, and assuring quality through accountability. I actually, I I don't know whether anyone has ever heard someone say what we really need to do is build performativity, but like, um, uh, as a strategy initiative, it sounds quite... um, uh, Against the student engagement agenda's encroachment upon student liberties as regards choice and movement, McFarlane asserts student freedom as a right. So he says the freedom to learn needs to be understood both as a negative right not to have certain liberties taken away from students and as a positive right 
to enable them to exercise freedoms that will promote their personal growth as independent thinkers. Further to this, he then says, students need to be given the capability to be able to become independent learners. So some people will recognize this language, others won't, but I, I will sort of explain some of the background to positive and negative rights and capabilities um, from which Bruce derives this kind of argument. One of Bruce's principal objections to the student engagement agenda is therefore its infringement on student rights. He says, in our collective eagerness to bring about learning gain, respond to the perceived expectations of employers and comfort ourselves that higher education represents good value for money for taxpayers, we seem to have forgotten that students are, in most contexts, adults and have freely chosen to be at university to learn. I think they have quite a lot of assumptions, actually, in, in that. But um, he goes on to say, given this reality, it seems only logical and just that their freedom to learn in ways that meet their needs should be our paramount concern. So in this, we see a direct criticism of the market logic, of the supposed market, lo market logic of a management-driven engagement agenda. However, what surprises me in some ways is that the proposed alternative carries with it its own market logic, not directed towards the market necessarily, but still operating according to it. And here I'm talking about the logic of consumer rights. Bruce argues the case for student academic freedom as a right, the right of students not to, quote, have things imposed on them that they do not want, which would be difficult then to create a situation in which um, they would dissent or disagree, perhaps. The right to choose, for example, whether attendance at lectures and other classes constitutes value for their time, and the right to learn in ways that meets their needs and dispositions as persons. So my question at this stage is, in this assertion of student rights, for me, actually, the picture of the student as consumer in some ways reappears, but this time it is the student not as a consumer of education or of knowledge, but as a consumer of rights. What am I entitled to? McFarland's notions of student freedom are informed by the capability approach made famous by Nobel economist Amartya Sen, and also subsequently by his collaborator, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum. In brief, Sen first formulated his notion of capabilities from the observation that development economics should not only be concerned with the goods and material wealth people have in their societies, but also with what they value in terms of well-being, i.e. health or access to religion, family, etc., the capability approach is therefore defined as individual freedom as a social commitment by Marchesen, and itself drew inspiration from Isaiah Berlin's notion of positive and negative freedoms. Hence the language of positive and negative. To see the influence that both Isaiah Berlin and the capabilities approach has on Bruce's conception of the freedom to learn, we only have to look again at its <coughs> definition both as a negative right and as a positive right. In the past, 
Joyce McFarlane and others have put forward interesting cases for considering academic freedom as a capability, especially in advancing the cause for academic freedom that pertains as much to students as it does to staff. The attractiveness of this idea lies in its moving away from the generalizing and idealizing attitude of attaching academic freedom to the university as institution or to tenured staff as a form of job protection. McFarlane has adopted a critical stance towards a purely negative articulation of freedom, i.e. one that stresses freedom from others and is more attentive to the issues of inclusion presented by the simple addition of freedoms to do things to a list of freedoms from having things done to you, because he recognises that the former can still contain a degree of what he says inculcation of particular sets of attitudes or values that can in themselves exclude others, thereby generating further in the discourse of capabilities what are called unfreedoms. He therefore draws a distinction between domestication, a word that has already come up in Michael's presentation, and empowerment in liberal education, with an articulation of domestication that borders on criticism of Martha Nussbaum's view that the purpose of a liberal education is to create world citizens. He says that domestication involves seeking to implant specific sets of civic imperatives such as developing students as global citizens or demonstrating that they care about the environment and so on. McFarland criticises domestication for its attempt to make of education an entirely socialising agenda. The risk, as McFarland has noted elsewhere in relation to academics' professional responsibility, is that sets of values tend to encourage compliance over empowerment. Empowerment, by contrast, is centred on students developing critical thinking skills and their own voice rather than adopting the one provided for them. Okay, but the idea of empowerment addressed in terms of freedoms that a person either has or does not have, substantively, couched in the need for developing one's own voice, continues to create a dialectical abstraction from the educational situation, whilst also asserting the self-centeredness of academic freedom. What do I have or not have? Whether that of student or staff, uh, and that is asserted over its orientation towards learning and towards others in the learning situation. So even when understood as a capability, Academic freedom is articulated as a commodifiable opportunity to which academics and students are individually entitled, creating consumers of the libertarian notion of opportunity to replace consumers of the neoliberal market and skills. So, my feeling about the limits of this argument, therefore, and making the claim for... Um, <coughs> constantly asserting substantive rights according to who does or does not have them, uh, whilst this is uh, often an important thing to do, um, means that uh, both rights and capabilities can still emerge as um, a right in themselves to proactively assert one's own freedoms and voice over 
others. And this is where some advocates for it even take academic freedom as far as amounting to being a right to say whatever one likes, or even the right to offend, which I don't think uh, in and of itself um, is a valuable thing to be wanting to do. Um, rather than the responsibility to say what is necessary, and responsibility is what is go I'm going to come on to in, in a moment. So a collapse of individualism into potentially egocentrism becomes one possible consequence of this formulation and has significant implications for contributions to knowledge, to academia and the university environment in general. Education simply becomes about who gets what, who is not getting enough and how everyone can get heard more when there is no right to listen involved necessarily and I mean I've highlighted here the fact that there is this kind of economy or market in taking things away and giving things back um, uh, uh, of the language of, of rights almost. To risk reducing this point to the level of the absurd if everyone to, were to assert their right to freedom of expression and their freedom to learn all at once what kind of learning and t listening experience would anyone have? In many ways, the flaw in the reasoning for student academic freedom as a capability comes about from its grounding and its compensating for negative freedoms with positive ones. To reiterate, McFarlane says, this is where freedom needs to be understood as about having capabilities through positive rights. The rights and freedoms are always for oneself, and that self is neither seen as responsive to nor responsive, responsible for anything within that formulation. So freedom understood as a right, to my mind, only tells half of the story of academic or student freedom because it is retrospective and based what is upon what is already known about the history of the university and the past injustices upon which it can act. This leads to what Bruce calls the paradox of freedom, in which freedom for one party can mean freedom can mean less for another. And an economy of freedoms emerges in which we are constantly trying to balance liberties equally for all. But the other side to freedom is perhaps one that cannot be told because it looks ahead to the university's role in an unknown future. There are two ways to engage with the unknowable half to, in this context I'm still talking about academic freedom, either by allowing the right to dictate the outcomes of that future, or to acknowledge that every right is in itself a recognition of the failings of previous rights to create the best future outcomes. If the latter position is accepted, then an ethical position towards the future is required that does not assume the best outcomes in advance and therefore cannot know what the necessary rights and capabilities are um, to achieve that future and instead remains open to its possibilities. By no means do I want to reject the case for student rights per se. My concern, however, is that in asserting rights against their presumed infringement by particular policy approaches, we set a precedent for attitudes towards higher education in general, which is to say, in acting against the compulsion of students to attend and participate by declaring their rights not to do so, we risk creating an environment in which everyone is entitled to everything 
but no one feels committed to anything. It's not so much a sort of socialist manifesto, um, so much as one that's trying to recognise maybe an interplay of the self and the social within this institution we call the university, and the ways that students come into consciousness of themselves as individual voices within a community of learning. So I'm not so much looking for the kind of compromise or, or fair deal here, but rather to stress the reciprocity of engagement on the parts of both academic and student that exists independently of any obligation or compulsion to engage. I slightly missed that one. So here we go. Could there be freedom in engagement? Oh, here's Stanley Cavell again. <clears throat> Is freedom something that can only be asserted against engagement, against this agenda? Or is it possible that a particular kind of freedom could be discovered through engaging? Whether one is an academic engaging one's students or a student engagement, a student engaging in learning. As a university educator, the discourse of rights sometimes leaves me feeling conflicted and constrained when it comes to thinking about the teaching situation. If I reward the stu students the negative rights not to attend and the right not to participate in discussion, as well as the positive rights to learn exactly as they please, I end up questioning whether I'm still doing right by them as a representative of something called higher education. And this is where I think the checks and balances of substantive liberties in relation to higher learning reach their limits. Because this is a discourse of competition that does not say enough of the more existential dimension to our university education. What am I prepared to do, despite my rights or theirs, but that I think is right for this situation, here and now? Whatever anyone is entitled to, we cannot require a will to learn. There is a danger, however, that rights as a precondition for learning actually create a sense of entitlement in relation to education, instead of stimulating or cultivating that desire to learn. The prospect of an ethics of responsibility as a complement to the substantive notion of rights should not prescribe a set of obligations and duties expected of students in return for their rights. This again reduces any ethics of higher education to a form of moral transactionalism. I'll try that one again. Moral transactionalism. I've lost it now. Um, the responsibility here is not one that is reducible to a social contract model in this fashion. Instead, as the word implies, it begins with a response. A response to extant knowledge, to the opinions and work of others, to key questions in the discipline. And this is where I think a response to criteria possibly comes into um, things. A response, therefore, necessarily demands that listening come before expression, with the utterance then proceeding from it, becoming an instance of self-awareness, or what the philosopher Mikhail Bakhtin describes as answerability. So when he calls an, what he calls an answerable act or responsible act, 
is one that, unlike rights which are universal and apply to everyone in every situation at any time, responsibility and answerability refer to the here and now, nothing that could happen differently for any other person other than myself because I am the only person who is standing in this position here and now um, and what he calls I suppose uniqueness therefore um, this response needn't take the form of immediate classroom discussion so um, when I think about this idea of responsibility as, as a response, um, uh, this does not necessitate students being forced to answer things in classes as a mode of participation. It can come at any time, I suppose, in, even in the form of how they choose to respond through assessment. But it is a recognition that in sort of writing an essay, this is one's own work. You're not just recycling what has been requested for you, um, but it is an expression of your own voice. So it might also take the form of essays or presentations or whatever it is. But the self-consciousness of such activities can and does involve a recognition of reciprocity, that one is responding to the content and the curriculum, the way that it has been delivered by a certain tutor, for example. Responsibility thus entails an awareness that one's own self-development, growth, and even freedom is attendant upon others in the community to provide us with that to which we can offer a response. And in lots of ways, the more exciting, the more dynamic, and the more various the content which is provided, the richer the response, the more, we might say, we are engaged. Engagement and freedom as I see it, therefore, thus find themselves in a symbiotic relationship rather than an antagonistic one. To really find the freedom of our own voice, we cannot just declare a right to it. We have to undertake risking it in relation to others and to knowledge, as well as in conflict with others and with knowledge. Cavell. I think his this quote on, on freedom and how um, uh, we have to something, it has to be something that you fight for rather than something that you're awarded or rewarded with um, is particularly interesting in this instance. The, in the human individual to win freedom must be something that can fight for recognition, which now means vie with its incorporated interpretations of itself for a voice, for the leading voice in its own history. So Fighting for, for one's own freedom is the other side, perhaps, to being rewarded with freedoms that quite often amount to people not doing an awful lot with them. This fight cannot really be undertaken without certain forms of exposure, invitation, initiation into criteria that are part of university learning, by and through which students can come to accept certain claims, claim of reason, contest others and reject some also. And this is where I find myself very much in sympathy with the Mandy's version of disengagement. But I'm calling it engagement here, I suppose. 
All this is part of the exercise of individual self-development, but one which can only occur as part of a particular community. If the community is constructed only along the lines of a social contract of rights entitlement, however, then there is little incentive for the exercise of voice. The universal right to expression could actually end up forbidding the exploration of what individual expression has to offer. My sense then is that student engagement is something that we are all responsible for if the university is to continue to be the exercise of mutual freedom. And it is this point I want to take a bit of a risk and just have a brief look at, at an empirical example, if you like, from my own teaching, um, because this may bring into play all sorts of aspects of possibly gamification, uh, edutainment, infantilization that I might be guilty of. Um, but it's, it's an example or illustration, I think, of what it means for me to act on my own responsibility to engage students, which I think is, is what I've been trying to talk about here. Um, and it, it deals with a particular problem. Um, Mandy was talking about disengagement over the course of a university degree, but this relates to very much specifically this issue of how do we engage students right at the beginning of a degree programme, particularly when they come from all sorts of different backgrounds, particularly when this is a form of learning that is entirely unfamiliar to them. Um, and in my case, particularly when it's a discipline that they are completely new to. And so this relates to a module that I taught for three years running when I first arrived at the university that was, was given to me to teach um, for first years, which is called Learning from the Renaissance. This is an education studies programme, a non-vocational degree programme in education. And the rationale behind the module, I suppose, is that uh, looking at the Renaissance is a kind of historical, philosophical blend of introducing students to where, in, in lots of ways, formal education begins, but also the humanist tradition that carries through a lot of our understandings of curriculum and the purposes of higher education. Lots and lots of important key educational questions um, but in a historical context. Now, what we found in the first two years of teaching the module was that feedback on it was pretty awful. <laughs> um, that by the end, uh, you know, attendance was taking a massive dive, um, and by the end, students were just reporting that they couldn't understand why we were looking 500, 600 years back in time um, for a subject when they wanted to become teachers ultimately at the end of their degree program. So, you know, there's a part of me that sort of thought, well, actually, I'm going to stubbornly persist with what I think is um, good curricular content here, and they're just refusing to understand it. Or I'm going to try and find a way of, um, I suppose, getting them to see the connection with today, and maybe their own thoughts and beliefs about education as well. Um, such that they do find some purpose and value in it. And 
what I came up with, and this is, this is the gamification bit, I suppose, because on our virtual learning network, um, there is a tool which allows you to construct quizzes for um, students. And what I did was assemble a series of very simple yes and no um, or two answer question, um, questions with, with, with responses. And you can't really see what they were at all there. Um, but they were just very, very general, broad questions of can you become a better person through education? Should men and women receive the same education? Should you be able to pay for your education? These kinds of things that were very kind of, as I say, general, abstract sort of questions. Um, so we did the quiz and then, sorry. Oh, it's showing up on, yeah. Then I was able to show them the answers. The only bad thing about this, this quiz is that it does say that there are right and wrong answers, which actually was completely antithetical to the whole thing, because um, it was supposed to be showing that there were no right and wrong answers to these questions at all. So I just had to reassure them of that. Um, but they were able to see the responses there up on the screen, which meant that when I said, OK, so which people put down that they were going, that, that, that they thought men and women should have different a different education, or girls and boys should be educated separately. And going from a kind of completely silent classroom right the way through two years of teaching this module, all of a sudden people have more confidence, I think, in kind of raising their hands, because if I were to hazard a, a guess, they knew that other people had said the same thing. Um, and this may be a bit of psychological manipulation on my behalf, but just that reassurance of arriving at a really unfamiliar um, new setup in learning with a lot more people in the same room and people are asking you questions and you maybe do have opinions but you don't want to, to air them in front of others because you feel stupid. All of a sudden, the visibility of other people who share in the same beliefs um, is, I think, somewhat reassuring and does uh, maybe empowers people, to, to use that language, um, uh, to contribute, to participate, and to feel as if their own beliefs, opinions are, um, are of value. And the really great thing was that it's using this, I suppose, as then able to show how each of those questions related to one of the weeks in which we would say look at Erasmus um, on education and how he thought that education was all about moral education, that you do become a better person through education. And so they could connect their own responses to those questions to, to the weeks that, that we were looking at. Now, I, I hate to kind of go into um, or, or, or make it look like we are sort of blowing our own trumpet and um, using learner analytics and that sort of thing. Um, but the module feedback really did improve. And there was mention of uh, how the discussions had sort of contributed to people's enjoyment of the module a lot more. But also we had a massive rise in attendance. And it was not something that I'd ever paid attention to before. Um, but uh, it seemed to me that this kind of thing um, could, I suppose, contribute to an understanding 
of student engagement as something in which they are able to exercise their own voice um, and, uh, and, and give them the space, I suppose, um, for, for doing that as well. Okay, so uh, just to conclude, um, this book by uh, Alan Coburn on the rise of medieval universities is really interesting because actually for people who are interested in, say, employability, um, it talks all about how uh, medieval universities were really designed to get people, uh, or, or people approached them as a way of getting jobs. Um, so, uh, but another thing that he points out is that the word university has nothing to do with the universality of learning. And it is only by accident that the Latin term universitas has given rise to the established nomenclature. For universitas was a general word of wide application in the 12th, 13th and 14th centuries, <coughs> bless you, and was used to denote any kind of aggregate or body of persons with common interests and independent legal status. And I think this is maybe um, where, where I've been getting at most and what I'm, I'm kind of most interested in my own uh, teaching is the idea of common interest and, and showing students that however different they are, that they might have common beliefs about certain things, even if they come to change their minds about them. So um, without wanting to fall back on any essentialist notion of a university's function or purpose, I think it's worth recalling the notion of common interest over that of the individual when it comes to this particular educational institution. The form that student engagement takes in some places may indeed be more heavy-handed than in others, but my understanding is that its spirit remains one oriented towards community in the sense that Coburn describes. Communities thrive as long as people feel not only happy with what they get out of an environment, but with what they put in also. Hence why, in its other locutions, engagement means people's commitments to one another in marriage, in conversation, and in conflict. The importance of each of these instances is that commitment carries with it a notion of responsibility. I think the great change in the way that we conceive of the nature of commitment in our universities today in comparison with their medieval and enlightenment formulations is that where once universities invited students to commit to experiment, they now invite experiments in commitment. This means that universities are and ought to be places where students feel free to try out new ideas and opinions, but also owe it to themselves to do so, to their own voice, to the free freeing of their own voice, if you like. The fact of their paying for a service may act initially as a barrier to their doing so, but the existence of a discourse of engagement points towards the possibility of doing otherwise although with no guarantee of the outcome. Equally, universities are still, to my mind, places where learning is not just something that is delivered, but celebrated. And this means that we must always be looking at new ways to invite newcomers to feel welcome in that celebration, whilst feeling, I think, justified in having a BYO policy. Engagement described and understood as a limitation upon one's freedom automatically negates the freedom arrived at through engagement. Of course, engagement construed along the lines in which Macfarlane describes ought to be understood as a form of limiting control, but that description is in some respects a caricature both of practice and of potential. 
Freedom within the context of higher education involves an independence of thought that is striven for, or fought for, as Cavell says, not an entitlement that can be bestowed. It is neither something that academics have already earned, even in tenure, nor something that can be awarded. It resides in the reciprocity of all activities in the university and the members that carry them out. As long as any member perceives themselves to be free of that reciprocity, the value of those activities collapses back into commerce. That's it. That's it. Thanks. <laughs>